my heart is full this morning. It has been such a joy to see everything that has taken place today from the fellowship this morning. How many of you were here to partake in the breakfast that we had? That's, that's great. And we want to just say thank you to the deaconesses for making that. I know uh, for preparing all that. So thank you. And thank you to Carrie for all the work put in with the different choirs uh, and presenting the music and uh, for Zach for leading the worship team this week. Um, it's, it's been a great start uh, to our uh, resurrection celebration. And I just want to read a quick uh, text message that Pastor sent as they were traveling. They're on their way to the airport this morning. And he, he said, Happy Resurrection Day, everyone. As we are on our way to the airport, we are following the live stream and worshiping with you. What a wonderful presentation of worship. Thank you to all who worked hard to prepare for this day. May the Lord bless you all richly on this special day. The Lord is risen. And Pastor Greg and Carol. So I know we want to be keeping them in our prayers as they continue to fly east to Louisville for the Together for the Gospel Conference. And they will return uh, late Saturday evening. But he plans to be in the pulpit next Sunday, um, provided no travel adjustments. And so just in case I'll have something in my, my back pocket to be ready for next week, just, just, to, just to be prepared. But we are, we are hoping that he will be here and in the pulpit next Sunday. There's no better way to spend any Lord's Day than gathered with the saints of God to worship him. Now, if this is where you typically find yourself on a Sunday morning, I'm, gl I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's a joy to be a part of this body of Christ with you and to worship with you on a regular basis. If this is your first time, if you're here visiting family or with friends and you're from out of town, we're thankful that you're here and we hope that you'll join us again the next time you find your way back to Oroville. But if if you're new, if this is your first time and, and you call Orville home and you do not have a church home, we want to invite you to come back. We do it again next Sunday. Uh, maybe not this extravagant with we're not going to have, we don't have breakfast every week. Um, uh, choirs and the children don't perform every Sunday, but we have a wonderful time of worship and we'd love to have you back. Um, I just want to say if you, if you have any questions or anyone would like more information about the church, uh, feel free to visit our church website. You can download our church app. Uh, and get more information there. And you can also, if you want to follow along with the message, you can do that through the church app as well, uh, as well as in your, in your bulletin. Uh, so, but we are glad that you're here. And if you don't know what EFC Oroville is all about, we're about making much of Jesus and being committed to the Word of God, teaching it, studying it, encouraging one another to live according to it. That is what this church stands upon. That is why we gather here each Lord's Day, because each Lord's Day is special. But of course we want to gather on those days that we have determined as particularly special. Just as we celebrate those days in our own lives that have special significance, birthdays, anniversaries, days of remembrance and honor, we have days within the church that have special significance. And the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is of utmost significance. What a wonderful time of worship we've had already as we've sung praises together. We've been blessed by these special performances. We've worshipped at the Lord's table in remembrance of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. 
And now we come to the preaching of the word. And this is no small task. I do not take it lightly. The reformer, the Scottish reformer, John Knox, once said, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. The Scottish preacher and pastor understood the grave importance of this task and the heavy responsibility of studying and handling the word of God correctly. And so with that in mind, I ask that you join with me in prayer. Our glorious Father in heaven, we come before you in awe and in reverence and in humility as we approach your holy word, that we might know you in your splendor and your majesty, that we might be drawn closer in fellowship with you, that we might be convicted of sin, brought to repentance, that we might find strength and encouragement. We praise you, O God, for the works of your hands, for your provision, for your protection, for your guidance, and we ask that you lead us now as we open your word. Father, I pray that you would guard my tongue, that the words that I speak reflect the truth contained in your infallible word. May you receive all the honor, the glory, the praise. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I would like to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word, if you have it, to the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might be tempted to think, wait a minute, that's not an Easter passage. That, shouldn't we be reading from the Gospels, reading from the story of the crucifixion, the resurrection? Shouldn't we be reading that? Or at the very least, we should be reading from Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. Well, if that's what you're thinking this morning, allow me to offer up this illustration. A married couple on their 10th anniversary decides to go back and watch their wedding video or, or perhaps look at pictures from their wedding day. And they're reminded of the beauty and the significance of that day. The wife turns to her husband and says, so when are you going to make good on those vows? It's been 10 years. Or maybe, maybe this would be better to take, if I might take it a step further. Let's say that parents are wanting to show their children what it means to have a godly marriage. What is a better indication of what that means? To show them the moment that you made your vows to one another or to be an ongoing display of love and commitment and leaning on God's and His Word in your marriage. Which, what is a better representation? Now, that does not discount the event that took place. And when we're talking about the event of the resurrection, that is the most important event in the history of mankind when we think of the resurrection. So I'm not at all trying to discount the resurrection this morning. But what I'm hoping to do is that as we read, um, or, or just to highlight again the importance of the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, we have these words from Paul. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. But the event of the resurrection is not something that we simply look back on and say, boy, it was sure nice of God to do that. That was a, that was a good day back then. Even as we came to the Lord's table this morning, and we do so each month in remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross, we not only remember the event, but we remember the call to be a living testimony of the effects of that event. As Paul told the church in Rome, we are raised with Christ 
to newness of life, meaning that new life begins and continues because of who we are in Christ. So this morning, what I'm hoping to accomplish is to highlight the effects of the resurrection and the the effect that the resurrection should have on us as believers. In the passage that I just read from in 1 Corinthians, Paul began that chapter by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul knew that there were some who believed that the resurrection happened, but it was, a, it was not a belief that was rooted in faith. So as we encounter God in his word this morning, it's my prayer that the effects of the resurrection would be evident in each of our lives or that God would lead you to repentance and faith so that you might be saved. So as we come to our passage in Colossians, I invite you to stand out of honor for God and his word as we read together Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. And the holy, inerrant word of God says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, so that we might best understand our text, we must understand the context of the passage and the occasion for Paul writing this letter to this particular church. Paul wasn't familiar with the people of Colossae and the church there. He had never been there. This was not a church that he had started. Uh, Epaphras, the missionary who started the church, had reached out to Paul because there was, a, there was an issue at the church. And that issue, we're only given glimpses of it if you were to read the, the whole 
the whole book. We don't, we're not told exactly what it is, but we can speculate based on Paul's response. We know that there was some sort of false teaching and deceptive philosophy that was threatening the church, so Paul writes to address this growing concern. And from the context, it appears that the church was dealing with uh, some form of Old Testament legalism that was being insisted upon that was also laid upon uh, a paganism that was based on the culture around it. So if we, if we follow Paul's outline in, in his letter, uh, we find that we find his, his, just like many of his letters, we find his apostolic introduction that he gives. He starts with the focus on the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is first and above all. That led Paul to his testimony of how Christ had impacted his ministry. And then Paul dives headfirst into the issue, exhorting the Colossian Christians to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, to which he then exhorts them to let no one disqualify you in regard to these ritualistic standards. He reminds them that their identity is in Christ. And that brings us to the chapter that we're going to study this morning where Paul issues this treatise on Christian conduct. And it is here that we see how the resurrection should affect us as believers today and how the events of Easter should be evident in our lives to those around us. Now, I titled the message this morning, you can see it up there, New Clothes for Easter, to play off the tradition that many hold to of getting new Easter outfits. You know, this was a big part of my childhood growing up in the South. It was the girls coming in in their frilly Easter dresses with their bonnets, the dad wearing a tie, possibly even a suit, getting the new clothes and then taking the, and then having the Easter pictures, the family pictures uh, with all the colorful spring colors. And some of you, maybe you're still planning to do pictures with your family today. And if so, may God grant grace and mercy, especially if you have children. Um, but for many, of those, for many of these families, it's the only time or it's the, or it's the last time they'll think about getting this dressed up until next Easter. And so the idea was that, and the idea behind getting new clothes and dressing up is that this is a special occasion. We should look our best. So as we look at this passage in Colossians, I want us to see that because of the events of Easter, because of Christ's death, his resurrection, and that we, when we are joined with Christ through repentance and faith, we are, as the choir sang, we are changed. We have been given new clothes, so to speak. Now I'm going to run this metaphor into the ground this morning, so please bear with me. If you don't care a thing about fashion or clothing, just try to look past it to the, to the truths that are found in Scripture and so as we begin this morning with our first major point, that we as believers, we have been given a fresh new look. And we see that in the first four verses of chapter 3. Paul begins this section, if you have been raised with Christ. Now probably the better translation is, since you have been raised with Christ. Because Paul is writing to presumed believers. And so what he is presenting here is a conditional argument. He is stating that if this one thing is true, then the, this result should follow. Okay? We, we learned these in, I learned in school, if-then statements. Here's your condition, here's your clause. If this is true, then this should happen. So here is the condition. If 
So what Paul is saying is presuming that those in the church are believers, and so he's laying out this conditional statement that invites his readers to consider whether or not the first part is true. He begins the section with the reality that as Christians and believers and followers of Christ, we have been crucified and we have been risen to new life. He's saying since you or if you have been raised with Christ. Now, Paul wrote this to the Galatians. The, the, our, and our children sang this this morning uh, from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. He also said something similar to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Through our union with Christ, we have died, we have been buried, and we have risen with him. What a glorious truth that is for the believer. We were all once dead, dead in our sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. And that full passage reads, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here we come to that glorious contraction, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who were once dead are made alive because of the cross and the resurrection. But it doesn't stop there. Paul continues on here in Colossians 3 with the conditional part of that statement. If, if you have been raised with Christ, then this should follow. And this is what he says. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is that fresh new look that we are talking about. Those of us, those who are old enough to remember, can see how their styles of clothes changed over the year and through the decades. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You bought a shirt in 1976 and you still wear that shirt today, okay? You don't know what it's like to see the closet change, but some of you, you know what it looks like to have a new style. It's like we're going to change and we're going to adapt to the culture. We have a, we have, so we have a new look. Now, if you're one of those people that has, you're going to get no judgment from me on the clothes. If you have the same clothes that you bought in the 70s, that's fine. Hey, fashion is cyclical. It's going to come back in style, okay? All right? But when it comes to life in Christ, we don't have the same look. We don't have the same style. We're to have our minds set on something completely different than we did before, namely Christ. When we were dead in our sins, we only looked to one person, ourselves. We did what we wanted based on our sinful hearts. But when Christ gives us a new heart, our focus is shifted. He is now the focal point. He is the filter through which we see everything. 
If you are raised with Christ, your eyes are set on him. The decisions that you make, both big and small, are centered around Jesus. By setting your mind on Christ, you are making the decision whether or not to engage in sinful activity. Whether it's choosing to refrain from getting angry, which Pastor Greg talked about last week in Matthew, or choosing to be honest in a business deal. By setting your mind on Christ, you are making the decision how to engage your family, whether it's with gentleness and grace or impatience or frustration. By setting your mind on Christ, you are making the decision whether or not to spend time in the Word each day or whether to come to church each week. You are deciding if you should take that new job, go to that school, marry that person, because you have first set your mind on Christ. And if you have a new look, people take notice. When we get new clothes, people tend to notice them. Well, people should take notice when we have been raised with Christ. Verses 3 and 4 there that we read, For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our life is hidden. Christ is now our life. When people see us, they should see Jesus. I had the opportunity to speak a few uh, weeks ago to the, to, in chapel here at OCS, and I, one of the things that I shared with them was how I, I, I used the illustration about how a lot of uh, social media photo apps these days have these filters that you can put on your face. Okay? Uh, you can, if you have a beard, you can see what you look like without one. If you don't have a beard, you can see what you look like with a beard. You can see what you look like with animal ears. You can put different filters. You can remove blemishes. So you could put a filter and see yourself in a completely different light. And what my, the point of that was is that, is that if we had a Jesus filter, I'm not saying we should have a Jesus filter. Don't go put, don't, that's not a good app idea. Don't go create a Jesus filter. Okay? That's a second commandment violation. Okay? Um, but if we had a Jesus filter, that's what should be placed on our life, that when people look at us, they don't see us, they see Jesus. That is what Paul is referring to about saying our life is hidden in Christ. And what, he, and what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we've already read from Galatians 2, 20, that if we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer us who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. Now, the world's not going to fully understand why we live this way, because the world cannot fully comprehend Christ. But they should see something is different. Either different from the way that we used to be, or just different from the way the world is in general. Because we have died to our former selves, to our sin, and we have been given a new identity, one that points others to Jesus. Now yes, we still wrestle with sin in this mortal flesh, but we don't identify with our sin. We may still be sinners, but because of the resurrection, we can now say, I am redeemed. So let us embrace the new look that God has given us. But in order to do that, as we come to our second major point, we must also clean out the closet. And there we look at verses 5 through 11. And, he, and Paul continues here with another conditional statement. We've already seen that if we have been raised with Christ then you should set your eyes on things above. Now, Paul is saying, if you have been raised with Christ, or since you have been raised with Christ, then you must put to death your earthly passions. 
Part of the condition of being raised with Christ is that believers would put to death the, the, the desires of the flesh. This is part of the sanctification part of our salvation. The justification part of our salvation was accomplished at Calvary. God God did that on his own with no help from us. We were justified. But if you follow Paul's link in Romans 8, verse 30, that we move from that foreknowledge to predestination to our justification to our sanctification. That sanctification part of, the, of our salvation is what we're talking about here. Where we're making, where we are, are, we are being made more like Christ and we, there is a responsibility on our part that we're going to see through this passage. It's part of that process where we work out our salvation as God works in us to conform us to the likeness of his son. And we need to understand this is not optional for the believer. We do not get to partake in the benefits of the resurrection if we reject the work of the Holy Spirit to help us put off the old man and put on the new man. Pastor John MacArthur, he writes, there can be no holiness or maturity in a life where sin runs unchecked. Yes, we are counted righteous at the moment of regeneration. And yes, at the moment of of salvation, our old self was crucified with Christ. But just because we have died to the penalty of sin doesn't mean that its power is not still strong. After all, Paul himself confessed. He said, "I, I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul understood that the pull of sin was still great, so he needed to put it to death. Now, that is not something that you do in your own power, mind you. It's only done through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. If we go back to that Philippians 2 passage that I just quoted about work out your own salvation, if you keep reading where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we are then told, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But it does not relieve us of any responsibility on our part. After all, let us us hear the words of Christ himself, who said to those who were following him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Taking up our cross means that we are to attend a funeral every day, our own. We are to die to our flesh and our sinful desires every day. One of the most famous books written on this subject, The Mortification of Sin by the Puritan John Owen, reminds us of the ongoing duty to put our sin nature to death. And probably one of the most famous quotes from Owen is, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Now this is not some sort of ascetic legalism, but it's a desire that all Christians would grow in conformity to Jesus. And we do that by putting off the things that our old self would do. We need to clean out our closet of the old sinful behavior that belonged to our former self. In the New American Standard Translation, verse 5 reads, Treat the parts of your earthly body as dead. And then he proceeds to list the various sins that they are to be dead to. And this phrase, which literally means to kill the members of your earthly body, it refers to putting to death the sins that our body commits as instruments of our wicked heart. 
Now, Paul gives two lists of sins here in this passage, if you go from verse 5 to verse 11. And they're not, to me, they're not meant to be exhaustive by any means. These are not the only sins that we need to put to death. These are just some of the more common or more troubling sins that Paul felt like needed to be included in this, in this letter. Last week we saw, as Pastor Greg is leading us through the Sermon on the Mount, that with the idea of some of these sins, it's not always about the action. Sometimes it's about what's in our hearts. As he talked about the difference when, or how Jesus corrected the teaching and understanding of the law, saying, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But he, Jesus turned around and said, if you have anger in your heart, it is the same as if you broke that commandment. And so we're talking, so Paul is listing sins here that deal with our hearts. So as we're being challenged to put to death what is in you, Paul focuses on getting to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart, to steal Pastor Greg's phrase from last week. And so if we have been co-resurrected with Christ, then we need to ask God to purify our hearts and put away these sinful desires. Whether they be sexual immorality, which is both physical acts and lust of the heart, evil desires, covetousness, and then it continues in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. None of these are attitudes or behaviors that are identifying marks of a true believer. Now, we're all works in progress, so to speak, but that is no excuse for sinful behavior. We don't get to say, that's just the way I am, or please excuse me, God's not done with me yet, as a justification to continue in sin. We are to put off the old self and put on the new self. Don't buy the new clothes and then keep the outdated stuff in the closet. There's no room for both in our wardrobe. And we're not just patching clothes either. We're not simply trading vices for virtues. This is not some sort of revamping. It's a complete exchange. And we're told that we do this through our knowledge of God. If we want to get rid of the things that God hates in our lives, we need to know more about who God is and what it is that he hates. We learn about God and Jesus Christ through devotion to his word. The more we learn about God, the more we learn what he is like, and the more we know how to be like him. And the more we become like Christ, the more evident sin becomes in our life, and the more appalled we become by it. So we're able to grow, so, so we're able to constantly clean out the closet of our former life and grow in likeness of our Creator and Savior. And as we do, as the new man is put on, we find out that we have a suit for every occasion. And verses 12 through 17 will show us. Now, I jokingly mentioned at the beginning of the service, at the beginning of the message, that some people get out their newest and nicest clothes for Easter and then never dress up again until next Easter. And while there might be some truth to that, the sadder reality, reality is that this is the same attitude that some have with their Christian faith. They put it on for certain occasions, special occasions, and then they put it back in the closet. So as we look at the remaining verses of our passage, we should see what effect that the resurrection has for us today and how that ought to reflect the reality of the resurrection in our daily lives. Paul addresses the, the Colossian Christians and all believers who are reading this letter as God's 
chosen ones, holy and beloved. And the significance of that being, one, we belong to God because He chose us. Two, He chose us out of His love for us. As our choir beautifully sang earlier, that love chose the cross. And three, because God chose us, we are to live as holy, set apart, and different from the rest of the world. In the following verses, uh, the, the, the verses that follow there from verse 14 all the way through verse, uh, or through verse 14, we have a list of five virtues that deal primarily with how we relate to one another. Virtues that are meant to reflect that we are God's people. And as you read that list, it could be a checklist of sorts. You say, do I, am, I, am I meeting God's standard? Am I living the life that God has called me to? We are to be compassionate, caring for people in need, especially those in need of the gospel. We are to show kindness, showing grace in all that we do, treating others how we would want to be treated, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And this list is very similar to the list that Paul gave in to the Galatians when he talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Now we know that fruit is evidence of what kind of tree you might have. We have fruit trees in our yard. When we moved in, there was no fruit on them. And so me, being ignorant of fruit trees, I had no idea what they were until the fruit came on them. And I thought, oh, great, we have a mandarin tree. And we have a peach tree. It's nice to know what kind of trees they are when the fruit comes. But if someone is completely ignorant of it, they don't know what kind of tree they might have. The fruit of the believer should be manifested in our lives so when people see us, they know what kind of person we are, that we belong to Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit should be evidence of whether or not you are truly a believer in Jesus uh, in Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We should be known, recognized, and marked by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And if we are, Paul says, we will bear with one another, which means we are able to hold fast with one another. We're able to stand firm with one another. We're able to suffer with one another. Because as Christians, we are united together under the same banner, the banner of forgiveness. And because of that, we are able to forgive one another. When teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus mentioned forgiveness. He said, we pray for forgiveness of our sins, which should lead us to forgive those who have sinned against us. These are the qualities of the new man. This is the power of the cross and the resurrection on display in our lives. So how do we live this way? After all, sin, as we said, is still powerful. It's still lying in wait at our door. How do we live in such a way to put on this suit every day and reflect the love and the peace of Christ in all that we do? Well, Paul tells us. 
He says that we are to let the word of God or the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of God is to take up residence in our lives. Let it be your guide for all that you do. Your comfort when troubles come. Your correction when you stray from the righteous path. Your hope for salvation and an eternal reward. God gave us his word as a revelation of himself that we might know him and through which we might be saved. It is something that ought to be treasured, hidden in our hearts, but not tucked away for safekeeping, never to get used, but to be wielded as a sword when the enemy tries to attack. And when the word of God does dwell in us, we will use it to God's glory to teach others, imparting positive truth and encouragement, but also to admonish, to guide and correct others, warning them of the consequences of sinful behaviors. And of course, we do that knowing that we give them license to do the very same thing for us. And when we're able to do that for one another, it should lead us to worship God together. We've been so blessed this morning to sing praises to the Lord, to hear beautiful specials honoring Christ. This is one of the reasons why corporate worship is so important in the life of the believer. It's not just Jesus and me where all I need to do is get along with God and worship him wherever I am. Because we are commanded to gather. We are commanded to assemble because the church, the literal meaning of the word church in in the Greek, ekklesia, it means assembly. It means to gather together. Because the church is critical in the life of the believer. And we are meant to be encouraged, strengthened, and corrected together through our worship together. And we do so through psalms, through hymns, and spiritual songs, as Paul wrote. And what he meant by this is that there is a variety in our worship, several different ways in which people would offer up praise. Now, there may have been some in the, peop- in the church in, at Colossae who said, I wish we only sang psalms. I don't care much for those hymns. Or those that said, I really like the spiritual songs, but the psalms are really hard to sing. There might have been people like that, who knows. But Paul says there's variety. And all are good for worship and for expressing thankfulness to God. And then Paul wraps up this section with an exhortation to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And again, we're talking about a suit for every occasion. Our faith in Christ is not something that should be worn just while we're at church. It goes with everything and it is suitable for every situation. Our lives ought to reflect the glorious hope that is within us. A Tennessee farmer once said, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What comes up in our bucket when people see us? If Christ is in our hearts, he is what people should see. Believers should be so clothed with Jesus Christ that when people look at us, they see him. That is the power of the cross and the resurrection and what it should mean for us today. That is the message of the gospel. When Christ died on the cross and rose three days later, he announced his victory over sin and death, a victory that we now know if we have turned to him in repentance and faith. If you have never experienced that victory, if that is not something that you have ever done, then I pray that you would respond this morning. I pray that you would confess your sins before the Lord and leave them at the foot of the cross. 
Okay, that is the old man. We come to the cross, we take that off, and we put it at his feet, and we put on the new man when we get up at, from, from the cross. We, we stand up, and now we can live a life that Christ is now clothed, or we are now clothed in his righteousness. Turn from the old self. Turn to Jesus. But when you do, know that it doesn't stop there. It's only the beginning. It's the beginning of new life where we die to our sins daily and we're being conformed to the image of our risen Savior. As we seek to be more like Jesus, may we remember to pick up our cross as we follow him. Let's pray. God, our strength and our comfort, we thank you for the cross. For Christ who bore our burdens on that tree, who died to take our place, that we might know the riches of your grace. May we take up our cross daily, putting to death the sinful desires of our hearts, that we might be conformed to the likeness of your Son. May your Spirit strengthen us and guide us, correcting our steps when we stray. We rejoice in your word that through it we are invited to come to you and find forgiveness. May we live in gratitude and praise for all that you have done. In the name of your blessed son we pray. Amen.